1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. This is Chris. And this is John. John, I got to tell you a, a quick little story. And you guys, you might see yourself in this story. And it tails into our episode this week. This morning, I'm getting ready to decide what to eat for breakfast. I look up and I have three cereals. One is Special K, one is Cheerios, and the third is Cookie Crisp. What happened to your lucky charms? Uh, I finished those off, but that, that's besides the point. In one day? No, I... Probably. Relax. The one point city. is... Even I, and I, I work for a health company, I think about it, like I can't sometimes get away from that craving because I know how good those little chocolate chip mini cookies surrounded in milk laden with lactose is going to be. So what's your excuse for nighttime ice cream every night? Uh, it's not every night. God. So anyways, that's pertinent because this week we're going to talk about nutrition, but it's more than that. We're talking to a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, a best-selling author. We talk about nutrition, health, addiction, the food industry. We talk about pink slime. I mean, he this this guy is the one who discovered pink slime. It's fantastic. You can't afford to miss it. I can't believe we got him on the show. It's, it's amazing. I think it's our first Pulitzer Prize winner.
0: It probably is. Just add it to the list of awesome list. people we've had on.
1: Add it to the list. Smart people in the house. So before we get into it, we got a couple things to talk about. First, the Twitter activity has been awesome. Thank you guys for kind of reaching out and engaging. We love it. I actually spend a lot more time on there now. John was surprised with my early morning tweeting, but people are tweeting quotes that, you know, from our shows and we're doing the same trying to do that daily. Sometimes we slip, but it's really cool. So, after this week when you listen, if you want to tweet about it, nutrition, health, addiction, you know, food addiction, whatever, Tweet with the hashtag Nutrition just so we can follow along and be part of it. Yeah, we'd like to see a Twitter-wide conversation
0: of our followers and that type of thing going. So use that hashtag Nutrition and you can see what everybody's talking about. You can see what we're talking about and we'll just make it like a
1: community thing. Also wanted to give a shout out to, first of all, our biggest financial supporter, Eric, if you're listening, man, we thank you. Your donations over the past two years have been more than generous, and we really appreciate it. But the other people, Alex, Andy, Lisa, Chris, thank you again. As you know, we are a completely listener supported show. You know, we really appreciate the donations. If you love the show and you can put up with us, if you send a,
0: f- a couple bucks our way, we really appreciate it. It helps keep us afloat. You know, we're moving studios again in the next couple weeks. So this is another excuse to go out and get a couple pieces of equipment that might make us sound better. So we rely on you guys to do that and put out the most professional sounding podcast that we possibly can and get the
1: best guests that we possibly can. You can go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash drink and leave a buck, leave five or leave a buck every month. You can do a recurring thing. So enough of our peddling our wares. Let's get into this week. We talked to Michael Moss. You've probably heard of him because he used to write for the Wall Street Journal. He writes to the New York Times. He's got an amazing new book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. He's well known in the industry. He's right up there. Him and Michael Pollan are boys, and they went grocery shopping together, and they write about this, and they're making a difference in the food industry.
0: He was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 1999, in 2006, and oh yeah, did we mention he won it in 2010. Winner. Winner of the Pulitzer
1: Prize. Chicken dinner. Organic chicken dinner. Actually, I feel like if you're interested in this topic, I can't help it. We are not being supported by this, but I guess I am through my my paycheck. I work for a nonprofit organization, United States Healthful Food Council. We're really doing amazing things. We are trying to better the health of Americans through the restaurant industry, the food service industry. Go check us out. USHFC.org is the organization, and the movement is EatReal.org. Please check that out. Also, a friend of mine runs a company, Snack Packers, and it's really promoting healthy snacks. These are just two things that can move us in the right direction, help you make easier choices, and really the food at Snack Packers is amazing. Just wanted to throw that out there. All that being said, enjoy this week's interview with Michael Moss. Well, I first wanted to dive in and say, I know that you covered the meat industry prior to salt, sugar, fat. And I believe you were the first one to kind of discover this pink slime epidemic. Is that true?
2: I was. I was actually looking at pathogens in all foods, including meat. And I'd come across this trove of documents, internal documents inside the processed food industry, which allowed me for the first time to sort of trace the making of an anatomy, if you will, of a single hamburger that had that health officials had managed to trace to an outbreak of E. coli. Um, And it totally surprised me. And I had this conception that hamburger was made from a single chunk of the cow. It turns out that typically it's an amalgam of scraps of meat um, drawn, purchased from slaughterhouses all over the world, and then sort of mixed, mixed and matched to what the industry calls the least cost formulation. And in this particular hamburger that that I wrote about, one of the ingredients, if you will, one of the additives was this processed beef material that came to be known as pink slime. And yes, one of my stories, I quoted a USDA scientist who coined that term in describing the product. He was concerned that it was being listed on the label as just plain beef. He felt it should be identified as something else. This was the, especially because of the use of ammonia gas in treating that particular product. Ugh. yeah. It's,
1: it's <laughs> that's so gross. And you've been doing investigative journalism for a long time and you've been really getting to the heart of issues such as with the meat and what we're going to talk about with salt, sugar, fat. I was just wondering kind of, what your interest in that was? Have you always been thinking, I want to kind of dig up what the people should know and what's being hidden? Was that your intentions?
2: As an investigative reporter? Yeah, I mean, that, look, I mean, there's kind of an axiom in business is that when you're really sort of performing journalism at its best, you're either comforting the afflicted or afflicting the comfortable. And I guess I always gravitated toward the, Latter part of that mission. Um, You know, my job is to dig into things that aren't obvious on the surface, and I'm lucky enough that you know my employer now, the New York Times, Random House for the book. Before that, the Wall Street Journal. I've I've been really lucky to have media companies give me enough time to really delve into complicated subjects and spend enough time with them so I can come away with a real appreciation, understanding to get below the surface of things. So that's always been my drive is to is to understand things, that especially things that people don't want the world to know about.
1: Right. And I think it's so great, like you mentioned, giving you the time to really dig in rather than just cover a surface topic, get the next article out and move on. And so I, I, I do commend you for that.
2: It's you know, and it's it's a dwindling you know aspect of our business, unfortunately. I mean, I've worked on stories that have taken as long as a, as a whole year to develop, and that that is costly for companies. And unfortunately, it's it's a it's a struggling corner of journalism right now.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, moving on to like I said, your newest book, Salt, Sugar, Fat: How the Food Giants Hooked Us, I guess, and and coupling what we've been talking about so far. I mean, you got high-powered individuals to talk with you, to provide documents, to really go in-depth onto some company secrets. Did you find people doing that because they wanted to shed some light on the subject? They had a guilty conscience. They thought we were being harmed without our knowledge. I mean, what, how did you do that?
2: These were typically not your average whistleblower who's picking up the phone and saying, hey, Michael, I've got a great story for you. Again, when I turned to when I turned from pathogens to the things that companies were intentionally adding to their products over which they had absolute control, namely salt, sugar, and fat, I again was really lucky to come across a trove of internal documents that put me at the table of the largest food giants as they were planning, plotting, formulating the way to create a new products. And that enabled me to identify the most important people in the industry that I wanted to talk to. And with those documents at hand, it helped me convince them to talk to me and open up and reveal even more secrets. And they kind of come from all kinds of vantage points. I mean, some of them have deep regret about what they did, especially as our dependence grew on the products they helped I spent a lot of time with Jeffrey Dunn, former president of Coca-Cola North America. He was one of their fiercest warriors, worked there for 20 years. He walked me through detail by detail on their pioneering of the supersize me phenomena. They're calling their best customers heavy users. These are people who drink three cans of Coke or more a day their targeting of kids and teens, especially at the corner store where they are, you know, where they will first sort of show their loyalty to a particular brand. I caught up with Jeffrey Dunn when he was doing what he called his karmic debt most recently, working for a farm selling baby carrots. And mind you, these aren't carrots that are glazed or fried or otherwise, you know, processed. They're plain simple carrots. And he, he had brilliantly stolen a page of the marketing playbook from the junk food industry and was trying to market carrots in a way to make them, you know, to make them attractive to kids in a way that fruits and vegetables just aren't marketed these days.
1: Yeah. And I definitely want to dive into the, you know, the the soft drink industry as a whole in a minute. But you you mentioned something that I think is interesting. And I've only recently become intimately aware when you say these are ingredients that are intentionally added. And so I I recently started working for a nonprofit, the United States Healthful Food Council, and we look at restaurant foods. And one of the things that people don't realize is much of the harmful ingredients that goes into your foods, it's not added by people at the point of cooking, it's added during the processing, and it's added in the background in these labs or or in these plants, and it's intentionally done, which is what you base a large portion of the book on, and I think it's not fully understood.
2: Yeah, I mean, for example, the vast majority of our salt comes from processed food, and and look, I mean, we always knew that sort of eating too much of these foods, which I like to call the foods we hate to love, can make you obese or otherwise ill. But what we now know is that the companies themselves have known this for years and years, even as they continued adding heaps of salt, sugar, fat to their product. I mean, these three especially are the holy trinity of the processed food industry, and they know when they hit the perfect amounts of the formulas, they'll send us over the moon. And so they have on staff these amazing geniuses, mathematicians, marketing people, scientists, food scientists who know just uh, know the precise amounts of these ingredients to add to make them utterly alluring.
1: I want to touch on that because a lot of times people hear, oh, they have scientists and marketers and you know, we think, I mean, most industries have that, but the difference that I think you point out, and I'd love you to go into, as you call it, the bliss point is this is really exploiting, you know, subconscious decisions that we make inherent genetic kind of cravings. It's, it's exploiting them. Don't you think,
2: you know, we're all hired hardwired for sugar, but especially kids. I mean, every one of their 10,000 taste buds is just, they're waiting for that blast of sweetness You know, it sends a signal right to the pleasure center of the brain that says, hey, instant calorie, you're growing, kid, eat more of this stuff. And there's a couple sort of aspects of of this. One is that, you know, the companies have figured out that, you know, our liking for sweetness isn't infinite. I spent time with a legend in the industry named Howard Moskowitz, trained in high math and then experimental psychology at Harvard. He walked me through his recent creation of a new soda flavor for Dr. Pepper, in which he used 61 different formulations of sweetness, each one slightly different than the other, subjected those to some 3,000 taste tests around the country, took the data, threw it in his computer, and what he discovered in, in, in this process, what he already knew, is that sweetness, our liking for sugar can be charted on the graph as a graph as sort of a bell-shaped curve where the optimum amount of sugar, not too little, not too much, is at the top of the curve, He helped coin the term bliss point for that peak allure of products. So from a public health point standpoint, what's really troubling to nutritionists and health policy people is how so many products now in the grocery store have a bliss point for sweetness formulated for them. So that, you know, it used to be just the ice cream in the cookie aisle and the sweets and desserts aisle, but now bread is sweet and has formulated bliss points Um, Yogurt can have as much sugar in it as ice cream. Um, The pasta sauce, oh my gosh, some of the brands, you know, have the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies in in a tiny half cup serving. And that's, I think, what's disturbing and led even some industry connected scientists to say to me that the processed food industry is exploiting the biology of the child by teaching the child to expect sweetness in everything they eat to the exclusion of, of the other basic tastes like sour or bitter, etc. And so if a piece of broccoli has a little bit of bitterness to it, the kid is going to cringe and, and you know, navigate himself toward the, the cookies.
1: And, you know, Howard Moskowitz, it's a great part of the book when you talk about him. And I love realizing how he kind of fell into almost this this food design and you talk about how it was trying to make mres more palatable
2: yeah he went to work from harvard for the army and the challenge was frankly so the opposite of, of the public health crisis now with obesity they were trying to formulate foods um that would appeal to soldiers in the field because the problem typically is that soldiers don't eat enough under the stress of combat um their food also typically has to last on the shelf for as long as three years. So he started looking at sweetness in the bliss point as a way of motivating soldiers to eat more in the field.
1: So they use these intense mathematical formulas and they go through and they do all this stuff. Now, do you think after talking to them, food companies have a duty to respect our health? Because... You know, the fact that they have these scientists and they do all this uh, upfront research to kind of exploit our wallets, if you will, isn't too different. I would imagine from things like the gaming industry who create these games that make you want to keep coming back or maybe drug companies who, you know, they don't they might not do it completely intentionally, but they create these drugs that you can't really get off of and things like that. I mean, I feel like it permeates a lot of our culture.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you quickly just about a meeting I came across. This was 1999. Um, the CEOs of the largest uh, food companies in North America were brought together for a very private, rare gathering to discuss none other than the, their culpability in the obesity crisis. This is way back in 1999. They were brought, and, and up before them stood none other than a senior official of craft, armed with 114 slides, and he lays at their feet responsibility for not just obesity, but diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. He even starts connecting their foods with several types of cancers, and he starts pleading with them to collectively do something on behalf of consumers and nutrition and their health. And from his perspective, the meeting was an utter failure because the CEOs reacted defensively. They said, look, we do care about nutrition. We offer people choices. If they want a low-fat version of our product, it's there on the shelves. If they want a low-sugar, likewise. But you have to remember, we're also beholden to shareholders, and we will not put anything on the shelf that's not utterly attractive to people. That's our bottom line. And so they were until so they left the meeting and went back to sort of business as usual, which is again, these are companies doing what companies do. making as much money as they can by selling as much product as they can. And I think sort of for me personally, I don't view them as this evil empire that sort of intentionally set out to make us obese or otherwise ill. They're doing what companies do. And I think moving forward, looking at solutions, I think that's really important to understand because as I saw and write about in the book, even when some of these companies individually have sought to dial back on their loads of salt, sugar, fat they've run into the pressure of Wall Street and the fierce competition among themselves, which which tends to keep them in check and doing the same old thing over again, which is pursuing optimum, utmost, irresistible allure of their products.
0: Do you think it's their duty to educate the consumer? I mean, I completely agree with you where, as a company. Their help to shareholders, they need to make as much profits as possible to stay afloat, that type of thing. But do you think it lays... At their feet to educate us and let us know what's going into our bodies and what results can come from that?
2: I can say this, that they don't think that's their job. Look, I mean, (laughs) they were forced to disclose on labels how much salt, sugar, fat there was, calories that came about in the 1990s because of government in Washington forcing them to do that. You know, their version of disclosing what's in their products, you'll find on the front of the labels where you'll see like a little breakfast bar that in fact has as much sugar in it as cookies. You know, on the front of the label, they will tout in big letters, you know, added calcium. <laughs> or they'll tout that low-fat yogurt with low fat on the front of the label with a fine print on the back that will, that will reveal to you that there's as much sugar on that as ice cream. So, no, I mean... You know, you know, I think I think the more important issue is that they don't see it as their job and they only do it when forced by government.
1: One of the things and you kind of touched on it here is no matter how you look at it, the food industry, everyone from, you know, the large crafts and everything to startup manufacturers are all rewarded by selling just more. Just keep selling more and more and more. And that's kind of what it is to be in a capitalist society. Will this ever change? Can it change It seems that we have to start there if we want to to have people just eat less of this bad food.
2: I've been sort of amazed at the reaction to the book. I mean, just from... And and not just kind of from both coasts, L.A. and New York, but from all over the country. It seems to me people are just, you know, increasingly concerned about what they're putting into their bodies. And, And that leads me to think we're at this tipping point here. I mean, if consumers can be more vocal about their concerns about health, about what they really want to eat, and they can manifest or express that concern in their own shopping habits, the companies will have to listen. And even Wall Street will go along with that. If sales decline on sort of the products that are least good for you, that will have an enormous impact on the companies. And there are some things you can do now. You can walk into a grocery store and with a little bit of work, you know, get out with your health intact, um, through just mostly through just, and again, I sort of, you know, I see this book, not as just a wake up call to the industry, but empowering to us because look, ultimately we're the ones who decide what to buy and how much to eat. And that's, that is a very powerful position to be in. I
0: find it kind of funny because with, with the added nutrition data on these packages and stuff, people are able to see what calories, fat and carbs, all that kind of stuff that's in their products. But recently I saw some research in a video that was showing the accuracy of those labels and some, you know, some labels being off more than others, some restaurants being off more than others. Are we doing anything to kind of make sure that what is being reported to the consumer is actually accurate?
2: That's actually some work I want to do going forward and test some of the disclosures in the in the labors, I mean, labels, it gets a little trickier, even trickier, because sort of how much is in the product and how much you actually ingest and absorb can be two different things. My sense is so far that the numbers will be off. There's going to be a margin of error, but it's not wildly, uh, they're not wildly wrong, but I think that needs further testing.
0: And just a quick follow-up, with those labels, you have per-serving things. And, you know, you mentioned, hey, make sure you check out what's a per-serving on chips or cookies or whatever it may be. And I actually went into my pantry and looked at it, and it's like two ounces of cookies for, you know, 200 calories or whatever it may be. Why is this practice of all these random per-serving listings allowed? And who who actually determined what a serving is. is it the company that's listing it?
2: No, it actually goes back, goes back to the FDA, and it's antiquated now. I think it goes back to the 90s when serving sizes were smaller. And so those labels are tending to understate um, how much people are actually eating. The other, sure. the other problem with labels and serving sizes on packages, and Kraft itself acknowledges back in, the, in 2003 when it launched its own anti-obesity um, effort after the rest of the industry refused to go along with it, and one of the things I identified is that, especially with snacks where there's three or four servings in the package, their own data showed that so many of us will eat the whole package, but they're required only to disclose the calories and the sugar and et cetera per serving. Kraft decided that was being less than totally honest with consumers, and they actually began putting dual columns um, on their, their nutrition facts listing the per serving, but then also for the entire bag. So you would, they're basically doing the math for you. They don't call this a warning, but in fact, these are warning labels on the packages. And they were starting to say, hey, people, you eat the whole bag, this is what you're going to get as a result. And the hats off to Kraft for really pioneering that effort. One really critical thing about the Nutrition Facts Box is there's a gaping hole in it. They will tell you the recommended maximums for sodium, for fat, saturated fat, especially because that's the one linked to um, heart disease if you get too much of it. But they don't tell you what the recommended maximum daily is for sugar. There's just like a complete blank on the labels. And that's one of the things that consumer advocates are fighting now in Washington to get resolved. So Even, you know, even after all these years, even the, you know, look, the obesity crisis started in 1980. We didn't get disclosures until the 90s. And even now, they're still not telling us and giving us some guidance on how much sugar to eat.
1: It's amazing how slow it moves. And I'm glad you brought that up, because I will tell you one thing that changed my view on food forever was episode one, we interviewed Dr. Walter Willett. Um, and I was looking into and diving into nutrition and I think it was him and he said, try not to eat more than 40 grams of sugar a day. And I was like, man, I don't know what a gram is, but that seems like a a fair amount. And if I look at something now, I mean, just a, a bar, right? A 200 calorie snack bar and it has 18, 20 grams of sugar I go. That's that's half of my intake. I can't even have like you said, pasta sauce or a, a bowl of ice cream. I mean, it's a very minimal amount.
2: It actually is. No, it's pretty startling how little that is, which just a reflection of how much we're getting all day long, and things that we don't even really recognize are that sweet. And and
1: it just it's sad how it goes into everything. But don't you think that the reason they're struggling with how much sugar people can consume or what they should say they should consume is because in an ideal world, and I don't know this, I'm making this up, we should consume close to zero or uh, is that fair?
2: You know, maybe not close to zero, but yeah, I think that's one of the issues is that the numbers that nutrition scientists like Walter Willard are coming up with are so much lower than the average intake today that I think they're gonna find that they're going to be startling people. Um, and and that would be bad news for the processed food industry.
1: It will, and I can't wait because I feel like once people know that, <laughs> they just, you know, they, they can't help it. But to look at a soda that has 40 plus grams of sugar and go, wow, this is technically my entire daily consumption. It's mind blowing. So wow. the other thing I wanted to dive into is fat, which cause for me, salt and sugar, Uh, since I was 5, 10, I knew that that was bad for you. didn't mean I wasn't going to eat it. But fat, especially learning that there's good fats and bad fats and fat doesn't make you fat and all this stuff, what did you come to? What conclusion on are they intentionally adding fat? Or or where does it come from? I don't even know what that would consist of.
2: You know, I talk about the development of cheese and how cheese um, has our consumption of cheese has tripled since the 70s to where it's now the number one source of saturated fat in our diet. And again, the saturated is the type of fat that's linked to heart disease if we get too much of it. And it's really a pretty remarkable story about how the industry in cahoots with the government, you know, sort of teamed up to get us to eat more cheese as a way of propping up the dairy industry. And also, ironically, at the same time that people were drinking less whole milk in order to avoid saturated fat. I mean, from a food technician standpoint, fat, you know, like cheese or or just oils that are added, you know, is, is even in many ways more powerful than sugar because the bliss point for fat, if there is one, if there is a maximum, it's like way up there in heavy cream. And they've also discovered that if you add just a little bit of sugar to fat, the brain is less apt to put the brakes on consuming fat, which it will and it wants to because fat is twice the amount of calories as sugar. So the industry has, has, you know, has figured out that fat is every bit as alluring to the brain as, as sugar and in some ways is even more powerful in increasing the allure of their products. Their term for fat, by the way, is mouthful. Because fat is not one of the five basic tastes that Aristotle first identified. It's a, it's a feeling picked up by a nerve ending, but that also goes directly to the pleasure center of the brain and says, hey, this is great. Keep eating. That's truly
1: disgusting. And along with the fat and the cheese, the part in your book where you talk about cheese and the government subsidies, it is fascinating. To me, that was one of my favorite parts. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more? Why would the government say, "Sure, make more cheese"? We understand that people stop drinking whole milk because it might be worse for you, so we'll now allow you to take that and give it to us. What's the economics and the mindset there?
2: Well, the, one of the first mindsets that Washington, way back in the thir- starting way back in the '30s, decided that the dairy industry was so important to the nation, it would do things to subsidize the dairy industry. So when people began. Drinking less whole milk intentionally, seeking to avoid the saturated fat and the calories, that left the dairy industry with a glut of whole milk and with something called milk fat, which is extracted from whole milk to make the skim milk. They began making more butter, more ice cream, and they started making so much cheese, it began piling up. They were literally storing it in caverns in Missouri, when Ronald Reagan came into office, 1980, with his, his Washington cutting ideas, his secretary of agriculture discovered this. The cheese was going moldy. They put their foot down and said, we're not buying any more of this, of this surplus cheese um, than we have to for our, you know, for our school programs or what have you. But we will help you in another way. And so Washington came up with this scheme that empowered the dairy industry to raise tens of millions of dollars every year to market, to promote increased consumption of cheese. And not just cheese in sandwiches or as an hors d'oeuvre to be eaten before a meal, but they started making and selling and promoting cheese as an additive. So now when you go to the dairy aisle of the grocery store, you know, there are bags, it's bulging with these bags of cheese that are shredded and cubed and and diced and stringed and tubbed, all to get you to add more cheese in your own cooking as an additive to increase the allure. But then as you wander through the grocery store, so many products have so much more added cheese to them. Frozen pizza... You know, a bunch of cheese on top, and then they started putting cheese stuffed into the crust. <laughs> and again, the point is to increase the mouthfeel, to increase the allure, um, but what that did was slipped almost all of that saturated fat that we had tried to get out of our diet by drinking seal milk back into our diets in the form of none other than cheese.
1: And I love cheese. I mean, I have one of those massive bags of shredded cheese in my refrigerator. (laughs) John and I are laughing because we put it on, like, I'll I'll say I'm eating vegetarian tonight and I'll have a little pasta and I'll have a bag of vegetables, but then I have to put cheese on top of it to make it tasty, you
2: know? Well, you should look carefully because, you know, a lot of that cheese isn't actually cheese as you might think of it. There's a bunch of cheese products out there that are, you know various forms and of permutations of of, um, of the basic sort of aged cheese that, that we all know and love. Oh, it's gotten so out of control. Yeah, I was just
0: going to say that statement alone makes, it, makes you realize just how hard it is to stay on top of this, where if you have to look out to see if your cheese is real yeah. versus a cheese product, I mean, you could be increasing the time you spend in a grocery store by like two or three times. And I think that's the problem with a lot of people—they're just like, you know, this just isn't worth my time right now. But as we see how it affects our health more, hopefully, people start taking it more seriously.
2: You know, the other day I went shopping with Michael Pollan, who has a, has a new book out called "Cooked," and where he's advocating cooking as one of the solutions to the, to the situation. And we went to my, you know, Met Food around the corner from my house in Brooklyn, and. It really became apparent. We were sort of talking about how typically when anybody goes in the grocery store, including us, we're either rushed or we're hungry. And both of those things play right into the hands of the processed food industry, which is doing everything it can to get you to make a spontaneous decision. And so one of the solutions really in that regard is to, well, the old adage, make a list and stick to it is definitely true. But you can kind of fall into habits. I mean, once you identify products and things you can buy that will keep you healthy then you can kind of go in and mindlessly keep buying sort of those same things but he also pointed out that there are really good things you can get i mean we made a soup um, using canned garbanzo beans and they were perfectly fine and edible and we went to the frozen aisle and he pulled some frozen spinach off the shelf and said look this is actually highly nutritious it's flash frozen when the spinach is fresh out of the field and in many cases, it's going to be less expensive than than fresh, um, fresh spinach. So there are things you can do as a consumer to help level the playing field in the grocery store with just upfront, just a little more attention to these the, everything that they're throwing at you.
1: And I guess on that note, we'll let you go here in a second, but most people don't get to go grocery shopping with Michael Pollan. So, I mean, I find that amazing. Did you guys come across any or do you know of any other resources that people might be able to go to and and say, oh, this might be better than that or they're hiding this in in a certain
2: product? You know, I think people are just starting to do that. And again, I think think that salt, sugar, fat – does empower you in the sense that you begin to realize everything that they're throwing at you and so again it's it's a matter of being really aware of what's on the front of the label because that's the touting and the come-ons and it's the fine print in the back that's going to tell you really what's inside I also I also mentioned that you know they have done studies putting devices on people's heads that measure their eye movements when they walk into the grocery aisle and they know that our eyes go first to the middle part of the aisle at eye level. So that's where they put the most the products most loaded with salt, sugar, fat. And so a very simple trick is just to, when you're looking for healthier versions of those products, look low on the ground, look high on the upper shelf. If you're looking for plain oatmeal, because you've realized you can really cook that up pretty quickly and be in total control over how much sweetness you add to it, chances are it's going to be, Toward the end of the aisle, at the very bottom, uh, uh, near the near the floor, uh, and once you know where to look for it, again, that that can th- that's a real empowering thing.
1: Well, Michael, that that's a great place to end. Now that we've told people about it, we've told them what they can do, and at least planted that seed, which you do amazingly in Salt, Sugar, Fat: How the Food Giants Hooked Us, incredible book. Really appreciate you being on the show and also sharing this with everybody. Before we let you go, want to see if, you know, do you blog? I know you write uh, articles all the time for, you know, the New York Times and everything. Anywhere else that people can find you and learn more out about, you know, what you do and what you write about?
2: Well, I have a site called michaelmossbooks.com. And in that, you know, I'm, I'm putting up my speaking engagements and you can find my Twitter feed on there. And then otherwise, yes. So I'm back at the New York Times writing stories about food in the same vein, holding the industry accountable and looking at the same time for things that can really guide people into who want to eat healthier.
1: Well, again, that's perfect. Uh, I know, you know a lot of people are going to check that out. Really appreciate your time. And uh, thank you. And, and we look forward to you know more of your writing in the future.
2: Thank you both. It's been great.
1: All right. Thanks, Michael. Have a good one.
0: Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Michael Moss. Please be sure to go pick up Salt, Sugar, Fat. It's a fascinating book. It's such a great read. And, you know, it's only going to make you smarter about your food choices. And in this day and age,
1: that's something that we definitely need. Yeah, I do need a little bit about that. But like you said, it it's really tough when you go to the grocery stores. You actually get paralyzed sometimes. Yeah, you know,
0: one of the tricks that I try to stick to, you know, along with Michael's thing of looking high and looking low but I try to stay on the, the outside yep, of, the, yep. of the grocery store. And I'm like, all right, I'll limit myself to one thing from the aisles. Yep. And usually it's some type of processed
1: food, but it's, it's an easy trick to kind of adhere to. You know what the most annoying thing is? I got to say this for anybody still listening. When you buy all this produce, the other day I went and I bought all this produce. And then I always like doing the self-checkout. Uh, checking out with it is... It- such a hassle. it's so annoying and then the thing starts ble- like beeping and it says oh somebody will come help you shortly and 10 minutes friggin later and i don't know so just go to the regular have the people who've memorized the codes go there but thanks for listening thanks for sticking around we've sent a bunch of you books this week we appreciate you joining in donating don't forget to use our amazon widget you know like i mentioned to a bunch of you the lights are staying on so far and we're killing it man we're, we're flying past a million downloads we're moving up the charts if you've seen that smart people podcast is taken over from the big guys like the nprs and all that we're probably not but it just no, makes us no, feel no. good we just like to say that
0: but hey those of you that i owe iphone cases to i'm sending them out this week sorry about that this past week was kind of crazy with work so i'll get those out to you i promise again thanks for listening smartpeoplepodcastcom slash drink throw us a couple bucks